For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Dudici. You're listening to Daybreak. The first week of classes at Princeton is over. If you're a student listening to this, congrats, you've made it. Only 11 to go. You might have noticed that almost no one's on campus. We'll talk about the people who are and what testing looks like so far in Princeton and around the country. Before that, though, we'll discuss President Eisgruber's email from last week describing plans to diversify Princeton's faculty and expand the university's impact outside of the orange bubble. But first, we look back a few weeks to a list of demands released by Students for Prison Education and Reform, SPEAR, signed by over 550 students, alumni, and faculty. The petition focuses on a call for the university to formally divest from the prison industrial complex. But what does that mean? And why now? I talked to Anne Wen, who wrote about the demands for the prince. Spear is asking the university to formally divest from private and um, public prisons. Specifically, they're referring to the prison industrial complex. And previously, the university um, was called on by another prison-related organization on campus to divest from private prisons, um, which Spear says forms a very small percentage of the prison industrial complex. So now they're also asking the university to formally, and the key word here is formally, divest from prisons at the local, state, and at the federal levels. So you mentioned the key word is formally, implying that the university might already be informally divested. So do we know that they're invested in the prison industrial complex, or is it more of an assumption that they have stocks in these institutions? Yes. Um, in 2016, um, another organization similar to Spear had called on the university to formally divest from private prisons. Um, and if I have my statistics correct, that should be about 8.4% um, of the total number of prisons um, in the country. Um, but essentially, the university responded that um, they have no indication of um, investing formally in um these private prisons, um, but they recommend it against um, formal, formally divesting, um, even if they do have relationships. Um, so that's why Spirit is calling on the university to formally divest. That makes sense. So what has the university's response to these demands been over the past few weeks? After reaching out to the university spokesperson, um, Michael Hotchkiss, um, he has mainly said that um, the university welcomes Spear and other advocacy organizations to come together and make these demands. Um, but right now, the university has not formally divested or said that they will formally divest um, in their near future. Um, while talking to Spear leaders, um, I think due to some email loophole and complication, at one point, um, they didn't really hear back from the university, so I imagine that they will um, continue petitioning and continue asking for more demands from the university. So in talking to SPEAR leaders, did you get any sense of why now, why they chose this moment to make these demands? So I don't know if it is actually happening in tandem with the Black Lives Matter movement, but um, according to SPEAR leaders, historically prison systems and prison industrial complex systems have systemically um, hurt people of color and marginalized these groups. And so it could be that right now, after years of working on this petition, um, this petition actually follows the 2016 one, um, which called for the formal divestment from private prisons. And now 
um, along with these movements, it's actually very good timing. But it could also just be that the team um, has worked together and written enough, um, done enough research to believe that they can actually make a formal petition and not just talk about it behind meeting rooms. You can hear more about SPEAR and their on-campus activism in episode 5 of Under the Bubble, Spearheading a Movement. Under the Bubble is produced by The Daily Princetonian, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. While most of the signees on the SPEAR petition were undergraduate students with some faculty members, one of what I found to be the most notable moments of the past summer was an open letter written and signed by university faculty demanding anti-racist action and diversity across the institution. Earlier in the summer, President Eisgruber asked senior leaders of the university to explore ways to combat racism. Out of all of these discussions came an email. What was in that email, sent by President Chris Eisgruber last week? Omar Farah, an assistant news editor for The Prince, has that story. Yeah, so this email was a summary of the results of a cabinet um, proposal that was put forward recently, kind of addressing Princeton's role in systemic racism. And it was really interesting to me because they really expanded beyond Princeton's campus and put forward some um, proposals that kind of reach to just attack systemic racism across the country, which I found to be very unique. Yeah, so you mentioned that outreach, and that's something you touch on in the article as well. So how has Princeton sort of historically compared to its peers in that outreach and dealing with systemic racism nationwide? That's one of the really interesting things I actually found out while writing this article, because we were looking into one of the proposals. They have proposed now that they're going to create some sort of an online learning venue for less advantaged communities across the country. And um, we actually found out that Princeton at this point is one of the only Ivy Leagues, if not the only Ivy League that doesn't have that type of program already in place. That's interesting. So I wanted to pivot now to something that jumped out of me initially as one of the bigger points of the email. And obviously it was a very lengthy email, um, but that's faculty. So what are some of the goals that the university has now laid out in terms of faculty and employment? Yeah, so having covered some of the more recent activism on campus and also having covered, I did a deep dive into the 2015 protests with the BGL, um, faculty diversification was one of those points that there was quite a bit of conflict and the protesters kind of hit a wall with the administration. So it was really interesting for me to see how focused this proposal was on faculty diversification. Just to give you the numbers, it was one of the more specific pledges. They said that they wanted to increase um, by 50% the number of tenure and non-tenure faculty um, of color, of disadvantaged communities in general over the next five years. And then for staff, so non-faculty staff, they, it was less specific pledge, but they said that they were looking into options um, to create relationships with vendors that have uh, more diversity within their staff. Did they give any indication as to how they might hit those numbers so that 50% increase in the next five years? So we actually reached out for comment in terms of specifics and um, to give the university credit, we didn't get many specifics, but to give them credit, they did say that these conversations are very much ongoing. And one of the pieces at the end of the email was that there are going to be many opportunities uh, in the coming months for students and faculty to voice their opinions on kind of how we reach these goals in the form of town halls and other events. 
Yeah, so touching on that and going back to the activism you mentioned a bit earlier, how have student leaders been reacting to this? Do they see it as enough or what would they like to see going forward? Um, I The sense that I got from my context within the activist community of Princeton is that I think they're tired at this point of standing committees and the creation of new groups to talk and discuss these issues. I think that because... Um, there's been a community of activism at Princeton for so long and they've spent a lot of time thinking about ways to make the community better and then passing those ideas on to the next cohort. I think a lot of them are waiting for action rather than more venues to discuss. So that's, that's the main sentiment I got. Um, although some people did reach out to me saying that they were quite happy that some of their proposals and some of the spirit of their proposal was included in the university's email. One example of that is um, the online learning kind of reaching outside of the Princeton community because I know in the uh, BLC's letter, their climate report in August, they specifically outlined uh, Princeton's need to reach out beyond its borders and try to help more disadvantaged communities. It's clearly been a summer of conversations for the university, not just about the racial injustices across America and on our campus, but also about how to handle the still ongoing pandemic. Clearly, the decision was made to keep almost all undergraduates off campus for at least the fall semester, but not quite all. And there remain thousands of graduate students, faculty, and staff who live and work in and around Old Nassau. How are they doing? Just a few days ago, Princeton released results from its first round of COVID-19 testing for the new school year. Head news editor Zach Shevin has the details. Yeah, so even though there are very few undergrads on campus, there are also many graduate students, many employees going through uh, the university testing protocol. And the way the protocol works is if you're living on campus or if you're going to spend at least eight hours per week physically on campus doing whatever work it may be, whether you're a faculty member doing research or you're just a staff member on campus, have to partake in the university's asymptomatic testing program, which they just announced uh, a couple of days ago the results for their first week of asymptomatic testing. And in just that week, the university administered 4,477 tests. This all happened uh, right by the football stadium in the stadium concourse. One undergraduate who's living on campus sort of described the situation and the protocol to one of our reporters just saying, you go, you show up, you stand in line, you spit in the tube. And um, in terms of that process, the university said that they're going to gradually start shifting to self-administered tests. But in terms of results, uh, out of their over 4,000 tests, they received only four positives, which were four employees. And um, according to university deputy spokesperson, Mike Hodgkiss, uh, no students and fewer than 10 employees are having to quarantine because of uh, contact tracing for those four positive test results. And those four test results represent a positivity rate well under 1% at just 0.09%, which uh, the UHS's director of medical services referred to as very encouraging for the start of the semester. That's great to hear. Obviously, things on campus seem to be going pretty well at the moment. 
But about three weeks ago, Governor Phil Murphy announced that New Jersey schools would be allowed to reopen for the start of the semester, and many did. So how are those schools doing at the moment? Yeah, so a lot of people aren't really hearing in the news right now much about New Jersey colleges because there aren't really any um, of these outbreaks. We, we hear a lot about Temple, UNC, uh, Georgia, Notre Dame, and places where there have been kind of clusters and, and large outbreaks. But for the New Jersey schools that did open, there, there haven't been all that many cases. There have been a couple of schools that have reopened that have reported positive results. Um, I mean, Princeton reported four positive results, even not reopening. But uh, across the board, there isn't really any uh, college in the state of New Jersey, at least, that's, that's reporting all that many cases. That's also great to hear. So out of state a bit, I remember over the summer, Cornell University up in Ithaca, New York, made a few waves for their plan to completely reopen for the fall with restrictions, of course, but their models showed that as safest for the community and for their students. So how has that been going for them? Mm -hmm. After Princeton's initial statement, sort of backtracking and not reopening, uh, we saw a similar thing from Penn, a similar thing from Columbia, and very few Ivies actually did reopen. Uh, Cornell did, and this week they came out and announced that they have suspended some students over violating social distancing which resulted in, they announced uh, last, on Thursday, a cluster of at least 39 COVID cases, all tracked to gatherings where students didn't wear masks or observe social distancing protocols. And school officials in a statement uh, actually said that most of those cases, uh, 36 of the 39 were among student athletes. All of those infected students are uh, in isolation with uh, contact tracing happening, people being quarantined. And while a statement from Several Cornell administrators describe the situation as manageable. They warn that, quote, there is the potential for just a few small student gatherings to destroy our plans for an in-person semester. So that'll definitely be interesting to watch and see how the student body reacts to that, how the school reacts if there are more cases and, and whatnot. Zach, thanks as always for keeping us up to date on the latest in college COVID gossip. That's all for Daybreak this week. Be sure to tune in again next Sunday for the latest in Princeton news and an overview of the week's events on Daybreak, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on dailyprincetonian.com. Our show is produced under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince, and our theme is composed and performed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For the Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. Stay safe and have a wonderful week.